The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So recently, I have been amazed by how fast the world changes. And maybe you're like me, maybe you're at the age where you've got a whole lot of history behind you and you can look back and go, wow, things really have changed from when I was younger or when I was a kid. So we moved, our family moved back in the spring. And so, as you know, part of that is just unloading box after box after box. And so a couple of months ago, my daughters, I have two daughters, they're 15 and 12. They came to me with this box of stuff that they didn't know what to do with. It was a box of VHS tapes. <laughs> and there were like some classics in there, like Beverly Hills Cop and Say Anything, the original Terminator, you know, all the kinds of things that you want laying around your house. And there were some other things in there, like my oldest daughter's ultrasound video. And that just doesn't seem like that was that long ago to me. And we've got this box of VHS tapes and nothing in the house to play them on. We just have a box of tapes. And the world's moved really fast in the last 15 years that you would have never thought, 15 years ago when we did that ultrasound video, I would have never thought the day's gonna come where I won't have anything to play any of these videos on. Why, why do I have all of these VeggieTales on VHS? My wife teaches fifth grade, and she was telling me this week about a colleague of hers who was having a difficulty because the smart board in her room doesn't work. And so classrooms now have these enormous whiteboards, these smart boards that you can draw on and write on. And her colleague wanted to show a video, and she couldn't do it because her smart board was broken. And I remember being in fifth grade. I remember what it was like when my teacher wanted to show a video in fifth grade, like there was one TV in the whole school and it was on that cart <laughs> with that VHS player like strapped to it like an Apollo astronaut, like it wasn't going anywhere. And someone had to like roll it down to the classroom and it had that one wheel that was all jacked up or had gum on it and you couldn't really steer it right. And, you just, and then when you finally got to the classroom, like your teacher used it so seldom, like she was like, does it need to be on channel three or channel four? <laughs> channel, like that's what it was to watch a video. And that's a really different world. And the, the pace of iterations that happen nowadays is so fast that you, you can't hardly keep up with it. And, and like some of you have had the experience of talking with your parents or your grandparents and they don't understand technology like my mother-in-law, I think she would give her left arm just to be able to find a flip phone for her to use because the others are too complicated. And it's not that she's a stupid person. It's like if you miss, if you miss one little iteration of something or how something works. I had some people on staff about a year ago who were in their 20s. I said, explain to me Snapchat. And they sat down and they said, well, you can do all of the, you can put these little cat ears and different things. On, and I, why would you want to do that? <laughs> and like five minutes into it, I was, it, forget it. Like, it's just like, I will just not do Snapchat. 
The world changes really fast. This last week, though, I was sitting with my oldest daughter, and we were watching one of my favorite movies. It's a movie called Conspiracy with Kenneth Branagh. And Conspiracy is about the Wannsee Conference in Germany, where a group of German generals got together one afternoon to discuss what they called the final solution for the Jewish problem. And how they decided over a course of an afternoon what they were going to do to eradicate Jewish people, not just from Germany, but from all of Europe. And I've seen this movie dozens of times. But this time, I was struck by the language. One is that when they're talking about exterminating the Jews, they use the language evacuation. Because people are really good at not calling the thing that they're talking about the actual thing that they're talking about. But in this one scene where a German lawyer who wrote the Nuremberg Laws was accused of having a fondness for the Jews, this is what he says. He says, forgive me from your uniform, I can infer you're shallow, ignorant, and naive about the Jews. Your line about what the party rants on about, how inferior they are, some subspecies. And I keep saying how wrong that is. They are sublimely clever and they are intelligent as well. My indication to that race, my indictment to that race is stronger and heavier because they're real, not your uneducated ideology. They are arrogant, they are self-obsessed, they are calculating and reject the Christ and I will not have them pollute German blood. Now I see things like that and I turn on cable news or I read the newspaper and I think, whoa, the world hasn't changed that much. Some of you are like me. You thought we were done with Nazis and they're back in full effect. And even more than that, there is this rhythm in history where human beings, where we always find a way to oppress one another, to abuse one another, and to visit injustice on one another. When we let uneducated and undocumented fears creep up inside us, we always find a way to be people of injustice. It's almost like a reflex. You don't even have to work at it very much. So if you've been around Ecclesia for the last several weeks, you know that Pastor Chris and I are in this series where we're looking at people, figures from Christian history and what they have meant both to us personally and what they've meant for the church and particularly how they can shape us as a group of people. And when I look at that world, this world of injustice, and what the essential call of Christian people is, I'm reminded of one of my personal heroes, a man named Fred Gray. Now, I've said multiple times, one of the best things you can do for your spiritual life is to make friends with dead people. Fred Gray isn't dead, thankfully, but he's the kind of person that you ought to know. So this is a picture of the first time I met Fred Gray. We were both speaking at a conference in Malibu, California, 
And then just a couple of years ago, I met him again at uh, his museum in Tuskegee, Alabama. And there's a great history with Fred Gray. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter got to meet and spend some time with him this summer. My father is a fraternity brother with Fred Gray. But if you don't know who Fred Gray is, it's only because you've forgotten who Fred Gray is or you had a really poor American history education. Because Fred Gray was the attorney for Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. And Fred Gray has shaped your life, your daily life, in ways that are both seen and unseen. Um, for one, he was the attorney for Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and everybody else who was African-American in Alabama because there were only three African-American lawyers at the time in Alabama. But every time you go to the doctor and they say arrive 15 minutes early and they give you that uh, packet of stuff to fill out and you have to check all of those, you know, you never had this disease, you never had that disease, they're going to do all this and you have to sign all this. Well, the person responsible for that is Fred Gray. Because during the Great Depression, the federal government rounded up black farmers in Alabama and gave them syphilis just to see what would happen. Untreated syphilis. And it wasn't until decades and decades later that they found out and Fred Gray sued the federal government. And that's why now we have a law called informed consent that your doctor can't do things to you without telling you what they're doing to you. But what's wonderful about Fred Gray is that not only was he an attorney that did a lot to shape my life and your life, he was also a preacher. Fred Gray started preaching when he was 14 years old because that's what his mother wanted to do. And so he went off to high school, and then later to college. And when he was in college, he looked around the world that he inhabited and saw that people really do, human beings really do have a reflex for injustice. And, and that we will just about visit injustice anywhere we can if it's to our advantage. So he made a pledge to do something particular with his life. And this is what he wrote in his book, Bus Ride to Justice. He says, by my junior year at Alabama State, I understood more fully that everything was completely segregated, not only in Montgomery, but throughout the South and in many places across the nation. If a person of color had a claim against a white person, there was very little likelihood he would obtain justice. There were no African-American lawyers in Montgomery at the time. Very few white lawyers would handle these cases. I concluded that in addition to being a minister and trying to save souls for eternity, that in the here and now, African-Americans were entitled to all the rights provided by the Constitution of the United States. Therefore, I decided I would become a lawyer privately. I pledged that I would return to Montgomery and to use the law to destroy everything segregated I could find. So here's what I want you to know about Fred Gray. Fred Gray decided to do two things with his life. 
to save souls and destroy injustice. And when you open up the scriptures, when you open up your Bible, the consistent refrain for people who follow God, who claim to follow God, are to be people who destroy injustice. But here's what happens. We get busy. We get distracted. Sometimes we know that there's injustice, there's injustice around us, but it kind of favors us. So we tell ourselves it's not that bad. Or sometimes there are people who are victims of injustice and because it's not near to us, it's not close to us, we don't experience it. We say, well, it's not really that bad. Can't you just get over it, get past it? Or we're just blind to it? I had this experience a couple of years ago for my entire life. I have known that there are places where women were mistreated and abused and harassed. But it was at the dawn of all of the Me Too expressions that it hit me how fast and rampant it is. And I just didn't know that it was that bad. But worse, there are people who see and know that there is injustice and ignore it just with a veneer of religion and hope that God or someone will work it out sometime. This is exactly what happens in Isaiah 58. The Hebrew people keep following all of their religious rituals, all of their religious laws. They're doing all of the stuff and they're praying. And God's not doing anything and they have this question. It's like, God, we're doing all the stuff and you're not listening to us. So God pulls in his prophet Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, I want you to go and tell the Hebrews exactly what's up. This is the reason that I'm not listening to them while I'm not responding the way that they want to. And this is what God says. He says, tell my people about their wrongdoing. Shout with a voice like a trumpet. Hold nothing back. Say this, people of Jacob's line and heritage have failed to do what is right. And yet they look for me every day. They pretend to want to learn what I teach as if they are inclined a nation good and true, as if they hadn't really turned their backs on my directives. They even ask me as though they care about what I want them to be and do as if they really want me in their lives. Why didn't you notice how diligently we fasted before you? We humbled ourselves with pious practices and you paid no attention. So so God says, "Um, I want you to go and tell the people why I'm not listening. It's because of their wrongdoing. And the people say, you know what, God? I got the rule book and I followed it. We did all of the stuff that you asked. So what's the wrongdoing? that we haven't done. What's what's your problem with us? And this is what God says. I have to tell you, on those fasting days, all you were really seeking was your own pleasure. Besides, you were busy defrauding people and abusing your workers. Your kind of fasting is pointless, for it only leads to bitter quarrels, contentious backbiting, and vicious infighting. You are not fasting today 
because you want me to hear your voice? What kind of fast do I choose? Is a true fast simply some religious exercise for making a person feel miserable and woeful? Is it about how you bow your head like a bent reed, how you dress in sackcloth, or where you sit in a bed of ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day the eternal one finds good and proper? God says, here's what you're doing wrong. You're lying to people and you're abusing people. The thing that you're doing wrong, the reason that I'm not hearing your prayers is because of the way you treat people. the way you treat people. And I know, I'm glad you showed up at church on time, which is good. And you said all the prayers and you did all of the stuff. But Monday through Friday, you're not concerned about how you treat people. You can't support evil and be heard by God. You can't support evil at work. You can't support evil at home. You can't support evil in policy. You can't support evil in the voting booth. You can't support evil in your economics. And then turn around and sprinkle some religion on it and think that God is going to hear you. Then the Lord says this, no. What I want in a fast is this, to liberate those tied down and held back by injustice, to lighten the load of those heavily burdened, to free the oppressed and shatter every type of oppression. A fast for me involves sharing your food with people who have none, giving those who are homeless a space in your home, giving clothes to those who need them and not neglecting your family then your light will break out like the warm golden rays of a rising sun. In an instant, you will be healed. Your rightness will proceed and protect you. The glory of the eternal will follow and defend you. I pledged that I would return to Montgomery and use the law to destroy everything segregated I could find. What Fred Gray recognized and what too few Christians recognize is that a foundational and fundamental part of following the creator of the universe is a lifelong commitment to destroy injustice. So I wanna make just two suggestions to you about how you can look for injustice to destroy and find it and lean into this call from scripture. And the first thing you need to know is that justice is a first order issue. 
So several weeks ago, Pastor Chris was here and he was talking about first order issues and second order issues. And in the scriptures, justice is a first order issue. This is the way that Matthew 25 talks about it. When the Son of Man comes in all his majesty, accompanied by throngs of heavenly messengers, his throne will be wondrous. All the nations will assemble before him and he will judge them, distinguishing them from one another as a shepherd isolates the sheep from the goats. He will put some, the sheep, at his right hand and some, the goats, at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come here, you beloved, you people whom my father has blessed. Claim your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of creation. You shall be richly rewarded, for when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was alone as a stranger, and you welcomed me into your homes and into your lives. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you tended to my needs. I was in prison, and you comforted me. Even then, the righteous will not have achieved perfect understanding and will not recall these things. Master, When did we find you hungry and give you food? When did we find you thirsty and slake your thirst? When did we find you a stranger and welcome you in or find you naked and clothe you? When did we find you sick and nurse you to health? When did we visit you when you were in prison? I tell you this, whenever you saw a brother or sister hungry or cold, whatever you did to the least of these, so you did to me. And so if you've been around churches, if you've been around the Bible for a good bit of your life, like you've heard Matthew 25 before, and you've heard that call to be the kind of person who clothes the naked and feeds the hungry. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus says, this is how we determine the sheep from the goats. This is how you know whether you are a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus. It's not just something you get around to. It's the first thing you do. But you know how we determine who the sheep and goats are now in the 21st century? Opinions. Do you have the right opinion about this issue? Do you have the right thought about that issue? Are you conservative enough? Are you liberal enough? Do you have the right opinion about how we should build this or how we shouldn't build that? And that's how we know whether or not someone is a follower of Jesus or not, opinions. And none of those people, as they're spending all of that time shouting at each other on the radio and cable news and on Facebook, none of those people have done anything for anybody. And it turns out they're all goats. Jesus says, this is the way you do it. This is how you know. And it's a first order thing. So when Fred Gray finished law school in Ohio, he wanted to come back to Alabama, but that wasn't as easy as you might imagine it would be. So he took the bar exam in Ohio so he would have passed a bar exam. Because in Alabama, if you graduated from the University of Alabama Law School, you were automatically admitted into the Alabama bar. 
But the University of Alabama didn't accept African-American students. Think about that the next time you shout Roll Tide. And what's more, to take the bar exam in Alabama, you had to be sponsored by two practicing attorneys. And at the time, in Alabama, there were only two practicing African-American attorneys, and one was about to retire. And so it took quite a while for him to find a white attorney who would sponsor him. And that attorney just happened to be old and wealthy and didn't need very much. So he wasn't under threat. But when the Montgomery bus boycott started, since Fred Gray was the only African-American attorney and was everybody's attorney, to keep segregation installed in Alabama, the White Attorneys Association approached him and told him, if you will drop these cases, we will make sure that you never lack clients for the rest of your life. And this was a time where Fred Gray had a young wife and they had little kids. That's a big temptation for a family who's struggling, who's got a bunch of clients that can't pay. And the only reason you turn that down is that you deeply believe that destroying justice, injustice is a first order issue. That it's how you know. Second suggestion for you is justice is what you do with your life. Regardless of what you do for a living, justice is what you do with your life. So a couple of years ago, when we were in Tuskegee, I met Fred Gray for the second time. We were sitting around a circle. He asked me, he says, so um, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a preacher. And he goes, hmm, like Martin. And I go, well, you know. He said, you know, the thing, the thing is the preachers gave the speeches, but the laws what needed to change. Fred Gray was a preacher, but he practiced law to change the world. And I know some of you are artists or work in a hair salon, teachers. You can use your profession to change the world. So my wife is a fifth grade teacher. And so there's this approach to classroom management that she's trying to get her whole school to adopt. And there wasn't just a long line of people waiting to sign up for that. 
And so she and one of her colleagues decided, well, let's just do that for our students. It's called restorative justice in the classroom. And they meet up for a circle every day and they talk and there's this great sign in her classroom that I wish I could put in every room that I'm in, which tells people, don't talk too much, other people want to talk. And they discipline differently. And the class exists and relate to one another differently. And so she came home week before last and we were talking about how it was going and it requires just a lot more of the teacher just physically. <laughs> and she says, well, my feet hurt, but it's transformed my classroom. What would it look like for you to bring justice to the places where God has already placed you? Because as followers of God, justice is what we do. Because if we don't, we will wake up in a world in five, 10, 15, 20, 60 years from now, and the world will have changed and the world would not have changed. We will have all new phones, but all the same failures. And so this is my invitation to you, that there are places looking for you to step in and destroy injustice right where you are. And in doing so, we follow in the footsteps of our Savior who comes to earth in the form of a human to dethrone the powers and principalities of this world to institute God's redemptive and restoring justice. And it's because of Jesus that we know that when people earnestly and truly follow their creator, they do what Acts says of the apostles. They become women and men who turn the world upside down. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you give us a vision for justice, your vision, and give us eyes to see the places, all those nooks and crannies in our lives where we can be people of justice, and that we would step into it, Lord, with passion and fervor and trust that you will work through us and in us. And may we be continuing to partner with you in your plan of redeeming all things through the power of Jesus Christ. And we ask for it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.